Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, October 19th, we're studying Joshua chapter 8, verses 1 to 35. After Israel defeats the town of Ai, Joshua follows Moses' instructions from the book of Deuteronomy to renew the covenant in the promised land. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Isaac Schuler. Pastor Schuler serves at First Emmanuel Lutheran Church in San Jose, California. Pastor Schuler, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks for having me, Pastor Apple. Glad to be here. As we get started today, Pastor Schuler, give us some context. We're in chapter 8 of Joshua today. What should we know about what's been happening in the book thus far leading up to this chapter? So we have Israel. They have conquered Jericho. And God specifically told them to not take anything for themselves. Uh, but we have Achan, who has taken some things for himself. He's taken the cloak of Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. And so when this is found out by Joshua, Joshua confronts him. Uh, Achan repents, uh, then God states that um, Achan must die. And uh, Achan is, is burned and God's anger is kindled. Um, one thing I, I, I don't think I mentioned is that um, they tried to conquer uh, AI after conquering Jericho. Um, but because of Achan stealing um, the possessions, they lost. And so God did not allow them to have a victory. So then all of that took place with God's anger being kindled um, and Achan um, being destroyed by fire. And that's what leads up into chapter 8. Right. So we've got uh, fall or the, the Battle of Ai Part 2 in our text today. It didn't go well the first time because of that sin of Achan, which Joshua and the people did not know at first. The Lord brought it to their attention. They handled it faithfully. And as we read at the very end of chapter 7 in, in verse 26, the Lord now has turned from his burning anger that was there due to the sin of Achan. And so now it is time to conquer Ai. The Lord's going to give the battle plans. We're going to see Joshua follow them faithfully. A lot of text here for our consideration. So let's jump right in. We're starting in Joshua 8, verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city. But all of you remain ready, and I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. 
And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from before us, just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. And that takes us through verse 9. I'll, I'll pause there. So, Pastor Schuler, give us the, the first couple of verses here The Lord, with, where the Lord speaks to Joshua. This is kind of the pattern that we've seen in the book of Joshua, where the Lord speaks to Joshua, Joshua gives it to the people, and then the people do it faithfully. So it takes us into this first, the first two verses where the Lord speaks to Joshua. What does he say about the taking of Ai? Right. He starts off by saying, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Uh, and you might ask the question, well, why would Joshua fear? And it goes back to chapter 7 when Joshua is concerned that they lost to Ai, uh, which means that maybe the rest of the surrounding Canaanite towns are going to think that they are weak and they are going to try to come and conquer them. So God tells him, do not fear, do not be dismayed, as well as God's anger being kindled uh, because of uh, Achan, being destroyed, being stoned, and then being set on fire. Then God says, uh, take all the fighting men with you and rise and go up to Ai. Um, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people. Uh, This is important because it states that the Lord has given them um, into the hands of the Israelites. Where I would say in contrast with the first time uh, they tried to conquer Ai, it does not really state that they seek the Lord's uh, counsel, but instead it, it seems very similar to how chapter 9 will take place um, with the Gibeonites, where mm. they come um, and think that they, they try to deceive them, saying that they're from far away, but they don't seek the Lord's counsel. And so I would state that it's very similar to when they're defeated by AI the first time, that they did not seek the Lord's counsel. Instead, they tried to do it by themselves. But the Lord gives it out very plainly um, that they will conquer um, and that they will conquer in the same way that they have conquered Jericho. uh, But the only difference being that uh, the spoils and its livestock shall be taken as plunder for themselves and they are also to to lay an ambush uh, behind it. Hmm. So we, we have in the first two verses the Lord's very clear promise that this time things are going to go well because they have the Lord's promise. So don't be afraid, Joshua, don't be dismayed. And then it's a, a promise that the Lord himself has given the city that this is a theme in the book of Joshua is that the, especially for these battle scenes, that the Lord is the one who does the fighting. He makes use of his people in a variety of ways. As we get to see in this text, again, this isn't exactly the same battle plan that the Lord gave for Jericho. So he does make use of his people, but it is the Lord who's doing the work. And he gives specific instructions about what to do to the city of Ai. It's, there's a little bit of difference from what happens with Jericho. You have its king is to be done as the same as Jericho and its king. But there is the matter of, of spoil and livestock from Ai that, that's a bit different from, from Jericho. And then the Lord begins to lay out the battle plan here. There's an It's going to involve an ambush behind the city, which that that 
end of verse two then provides a transition into what Joshua begins to have preparations made in verses three and following. How does how does Joshua begin to follow the Lord's instructions in providing for the conquest of AI? So starting with verse three. You got it. Okay. So it says that Joshua takes uh, 30,000 men, mighty men, uh, men of valor, and he basically lays out um, what the Lord has given to him, um, that they should lie in ambush um, behind the city, uh, not be too far from it. And that when he does this, um, he's basically just reiterating what the Lord um, has already told him. Um, trying to think here for uh, what is it, verse 7. Um, then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city from the Lord your God, who has given it into your hand. So again, there's this language of the, these are the things that you're going to do and because the Lord has given you um, the city. So you will take these 30 men um, and you will lie in ambush and then I will give the city um, into your hand. Okay, so the, he's going to give the city into their hand the, with the ambush that they're going to flee before. I mean, so is this all of this? I know the, the Lord said, you know, lay an ambush in, in verse 2. Is what Joshua lays out, he gives a little more detail. Is this the Lord's instruction? Should we understand that? That this isn't just Joshua coming up with a cool battle plan? Right, exactly. We would say the same thing on a Sunday morning uh, when the pastor is preaching. We would say, Thus says the Lord that that these words that are being spoken by the preacher, by the pastor, are not his own words, are not supposed to be his own words, uh, but the Lord's words. And the same thing here within war, uh, that the things that Joshua is commanding um, to the Israelites are to be the commands um, of the Lord. And that's why it is so important that when the Lord speaks, Joshua speaks. Um, Yet when the Lord uh, does not give counsel nor direct Joshua that they should wait um, upon the Lord. And and so we too, well, when God speaks in his word, uh, we speak very clearly and boldly, yet when he has not spoken, um, we do not speak. All right. So is it, what, what other details do we need to, to see in verses uh, three through nine before we move into Joshua's continued preparations? Oh, sure. Sorry, I wasn't looking that far ahead. Three through nine. No, that's okay. Yeah, keep yeah keep keep us in into Joshua. So he's he's got the thirty thousand men of valor that are being sent out by night, and he gives these instructions. Uh, keep take us into these preparations sure. that Joshua makes. So he takes the the thirty thousand men and he puts them to the west um, of Ai, and it says in between Bethel and Ai, and it says that they they spend the night there, and so that that leads up to to uh, verse nine. All right. So are you ready to, to keep moving into verse 10 then? I think so. All right. So we're going to keep reading. We've got the 30,000 men of valor. They're ready to go. Joshua continues now in verse 10 of the text. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai, with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, 
hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. I'm, I'm going to pause there. I know there's a little bit left concerning the battle of Ai, but that's, I think, a good place to, to pause to see, leave a little bit of suspense as to what's going to happen to the king of Ai, although we, we should already know, given what the Lord told his people already. So again, Pastor Schuler, in, in verse 10, we've got the preparations made. We've got the 30,000 fighting men of valor who have been mentioned, and now it's it's early in the morning and Joshua keeps making preparations. What, what do we see Joshua do as the text continues, verses 10 and following? Okay, so he rises in the morning uh, and he takes the men and the elders um, before the people um, to Ai. And it says that uh, he also takes uh, 5,000 men, or sorry, before that, they they encamp in a ravine, which is, to me, is very interesting because there's this, then the separation um, from being in the north and then those who are in the city of Ai that they're not able to easily access them with that ravine in the way. And then it says Joshua takes the 5,000 men and sets them in ambush between Bethel and Ai um, to the west of the city. Now this, I've looked over this many, many times. Um, So basically it sounds like there is this group of 30,000 men that are set in ambush in the beginning of uh, chapter eight, verses three through nine. And then Joshua moves a group of people to the north. And then from that group, he takes 5,000 and sets them in what it seems to be another ambush. Um, Mm. And so looking at this over and over there, there are many interpretations on this, but, but the one that I think that is, um, is concise and and good is that the 5,000 men are the ones that, go into the city after all the men of war have gone out from AI and they're the ones that Mm -hmm. um, set the city on fire and that the remaining that are in the ambush are the ones that then come behind the soldiers that leave AI and Joshua is then in the north and they, as the text says, uh, they surround them from all sides. So it, it seems that there are two groups of ambush that there's one that goes into the city and then there is the other that comes behind 
the soldiers of Ai that have fleed the city. And then Joshua is at the north, and he pretends to run at first, which makes the soldiers of Ai come out as they fleed the first time. But then they turned around, and it says that, um, I believe it says fear seizes them, um, and, and they don't, they're not able to move. Uh, I mean, I've had that many times before where you get so scared, you, you just don't know what to do. One particular instance uh, is I was, this was before I was married. Uh, I'm married now and have three children. Um, but I was sleeping and there was a loud noise in the house. And I thought there was somebody in the house trying to break in. Mm. And I stood up to look in each room, but I started getting a cotton mouth and moving very slowly. I finally got to the last room and I just couldn't move. I couldn't open this, the door um, to go in because I thought that the, the thief was in there and perhaps he had some type of, of weapon and was going to hurt me. Um, so it can definitely resonate with the not being able to move. But so then they, they take the city and they, they set the, the city on fire. Uh, and what's interesting note um, is with Joshua's javelin. Right, so Joshua points. Oh, sorry about that. Joshua points his javelin um, because God says, "Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand towards Ai, for I will give into your hand, or for I will give it into your hand." And and to me, this you know makes me think of Moses, where the Lord mm-hmm. you know said, "Take your staff," um, especially when Moses was doubting. Right? If if the people ask me who has sent me and God uses the staff to turn into a serpent. And God uses that staff uh, many other times um, throughout Moses' life. And so here we have Joshua pointing this javelin. Now there, there is a perhaps some comparison where the pastor is, is the leader of the church and, and he uses his hand and extends it um, to absolve the people. Um, but yet there are times, right, it's as we st- uh, see in confession absolution where um, absolution is is withheld and so it's kind of a I guess a backwards comparison where uh, Joshua is extending the javelin um, to destroy uh, where the pastor is extending the hand to to give a blessing yet we will see that later on in the text uh, with the blessing mm-hmm. and curses so with the with the matter of the two groups of soldiers, you've got the the thirty thousand and then five thousand that are both mentioned, and and yeah, we were talking a little bit about this before we started our, our conversation on on the air here. That you know, is it is it thirty thousand and five thousand? Is it is it five thousand from the thirty thousand? I think I think either one is is possible, but the the picture either way is that you've got. You've got these two groups doing two different things when it comes to the ambush. Well, three three groups, I suppose. You've got Joshua and his forces who are, are getting ready to run away from AI, and that draws the men of AI and the king and the, everybody out of AI. They're following them as before, thinking, hey, we're going to rout them just like we did last time. And then you've got the other two groups that are ready to ambush in two different ways. The smaller group, it sounds like, is going to be the one that's going to go into the city and start set it on fire. And then the larger group's going to come in behind the men of AI so that they're all surrounded in the ambush. And so that right, is that that's the picture that we've got of this battle, right? Correct. And you know, 
looking at the text um, a little bit more too, it's very interesting in verse 13 when it says, so they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all the people, the men of the city hurried and went out early to the appointed place. So perhaps then there is also another group where Joshua is north still, but he breaks off and is with a smaller group of men. uh, And the king of Ai sees that group of men um, and then chases after them. And then the rest of the encampment that is north, then when they're being chased by AI comes out against them, which I don't know, perhaps because in uh, chapter seven, when it states that they should only send two or 3000 men against AI, they're, they're used to seeing that number of people um, where I think if they had, you know, say 30,000 people, I I don't know if a group of 12,000 total um, would say, okay, yeah, we're going to go try to conquer it. Well, maybe, because they they did, and they're they're feeling good from from having won already. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the whole picture of the battle that's described here in chapter eight. The reason I think it's it's worth you know making sure we have these details as, as best as we can is because of the comparison to what happened in chapter seven, and and in that sense, then the what seems to be a rather clever move on the part of Joshua. You know, I mean, when you when you put it in contrast with what happened in 7, where they took a small group of soldiers thinking they were going to to whip AI right away. That didn't work. They got sent packing. Joshua, the plans that he has here, you know, take advantage of that in, in a rather, what I would say is a clever way. And so I, I suppose the, the temptation in reading chapter 8 would be to see what happens here as just the cleverness of Joshua. You know, he realizes where his weaknesses were before, and he uses that to his van- his advantage here, so that he you know he fools them and and he wins because he's he's so smart, which that that would be the wrong conclusion, <laughs> and and that's where I, I really appreciate you bringing out what you did about the javelin in verse eighteen, because I, I do think the comparison to Moses is a as an apt one, just as Moses you know, was often commanded by the Lord to stretch out his staff. So here, Joshua, his javelin, but the, the point for both Moses and Joshua with the stretching out of the staff or the javelin was, was not about any, you know, inherent properties for the staff or the javelin, but it was about the command of the Lord uh, such that what, what appears to be a very clever battle plan. And I, I would say it is, but it's, it's not because Joshua is such a great commander. This is once again, the Lord delivering the victory to his people, right? The Lord is a is a warrior, a, a man of war. Um, yeah. As you know, we have in the liturgy, um, what is it? In service of prayer and preaching the, as it goes, the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So from that reading from Exodus, after um, Moses has, you know, through the power of God, led the people out of Egypt, uh, I believe that very next verse after that verse from the liturgy is the Lord God is, is a warrior is a man of war and so yes absolutely these these are are his plans these are this is his wisdom um, this is his conquering he is the one that has given the victory to israel 
Hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about I'll talk a little bit about that uh, image that the Lord gives of Himself that He is a warrior or a man of war. That certainly we see here in the Book of Joshua, not only in this chapter but in other places. I think sometimes in the the Christian Church today, that's not the first way we picture our Lord as a warrior. We tend to to picture Him more gently, and certainly you know we have the scriptural image of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. That there is you know a gentleness, but this image of the Lord as a, a man of war, this reality of that comes through in, in several places. Why is it important for us to to hold on to that? Why is that a an important part of recognizing who God is, is that he's this man of war? Oh, sure. Now, you, you had mentioned the God is the good shepherd, right? Jesus. And I think many times, this is a, a good way, a good segue to it, that when we think of the good shepherd, we think solely of a shepherd who is gentle. Um, but if you remember David, uh, when Goliath is, you know, making fun of, of Yahweh and David hears this and he wants to fight, um, Goliath, knowing that the Lord will give the victory, he states that he is a shepherd and that he has cared, um, for his father's sheep. And he says that when, beasts would come and try to kill the sheep, that he would defend them, that he would even kill um, uh, these beasts. And so if we then think of the Lord, we know that the Lord is our shepherd. And not only does he guide us beside still waters, but he is with us as we walk through this valley of the shadow of death. And we need not fear any kind of evil, um, including the devil, uh, because Jesus has conquered the devil. He is uh, died on the cross and, and risen from the grave. And so when we think of the Lord as a warrior, I think first and foremost, we must realize that God as a warrior has defeated you know sin, death, and the devil. And this is a good thing uh, that yes. that he that he's a warrior because uh, I he wouldn't be able to do these things um, if he was not it's, you know it's just a part of of who he is and it's it's not a bad thing. Um, just as a, a father, right? There are times when I am gentle with my children, uh, but then there are also times when I'm very stern uh, or very strong. Or perhaps at times you, you might even be going to war with your kids in the sense that they want to not honor you, um, but you stand firm and in, in the truth and, and you want them to see that, no, this is, God has given me to be your father. Um, to protect you, to guide you. There's going to be times when you don't think that what I'm doing is for your good. Uh, but in the end, I love you and I care for you. And sometimes I do have to do these hard things um, to, so that there can be peace. And I think that's an important thing too, is that we will see later on in the chapter that they make the offerings, uh, burnt offerings and peace offerings, knowing that in the Lord, um, that there is war, all right, there's a time for war, but there's also um, then a time for peace. And ultimately, in the end, uh, there will be no more war. Uh, there will only mm -hmm. be peace um, once the last day has taken place. And Yeah, that's exactly right. So the fact that the, the Lord is a man of war, a mighty warrior who can defeat our enemies and does defeat our enemies, this is good, comforting news for us as Christians. We're going to keep looking at Joshua chapter 8 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor Isaac Schuler this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, October 19th. We're studying Joshua chapter 8, verses 1 to 35 with Pastor Isaac Schuler. He serves at First Emmanuel Lutheran Church in San Jose, California. Pastor Schuler, prior to the break, we were talking about the Lord as a mighty warrior, that this is good news for us as Christians, that the Lord does defeat our enemies. He is perfectly capable of doing so, and he does that, and we should delight in that, that he defeats sin, death, and the devil for us. We see a picture of that and what he calls his people to do to Ai. We left off in the text with verse 23 previously, where the king of Ai is still alive, but we know more is coming now as the king of Ai has been brought near to Joshua. So we pick up the remainder of the text that deals with this battle at Ai. This is Joshua 8, verse 24 now. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword. All Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua." So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great, great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Now it takes us through verse 29 of the text. That's the remainder, the aftermath of the battle of Ai. So we, the king had been captured, and we see what happens to him by the end of this section, Pastor Schuler, uh, Take us into how Joshua now you know, kind of finishes the job in Ai. The city's been taken. What, what does he do in these verses? Sure. Well, one, one quick note to make, I wanted to make at the beginning, but I forgot to, is that we must realize that this is a Canaanite place. Ai is, is not a place where... Um, People are worshiping the Lord, but this is a land where God has said, this is the promised land. This is this is a land that, that you will conquer. And we must realize that also God does not desire the death of the wicked, but instead that the wicked will repent. Um, for example, what we have with Jericho, where most of the inhabitants in Jericho die, um, but Rahab doesn't, along with, I think, some of her family. And why is that? Because they 
they helped the spies. And in the end, um, we would state that there, there is this trust in some way that she believed um, that what would take place. And so this is what God desires is, is faith and trust in him. And so I think that's important to understand when we think about these verses, especially uh, when it talks about that all of the inhabitants of AI in the open wilderness were pursued um, and then they were put to death, which we would state were the warriors, um, were the men mm-hmm. um, by the edge of the sword. And then in 25, and all who fell that day, both men and women were 12,000, all the people of AI. And again, understanding that um, that God desires not the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would repent and, and believe in him. Um, because ultimately, I think when we read these verses, we might have a hard time, just as with the, the Lord is a warrior. Uh, we have a hard time mm-hmm. perhaps hearing that. We have a hard time perhaps hearing that both men and women um, that day, 12,000 and all, um, were killed. Yet in the end, those who have rejected the Lord, um, they will die eternally. Those who have rejected Christ, there, there will be um, weeping and gnashing of teeth and, and eternal fire. Um, as, as we hear, uh, yet we find comfort uh, in the parable of the sheep and the goats where Jesus looks at the sheep or at the goats and he says, depart from me, you who are cursed um, into the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels, that we understand that hell was never prepared um, for mankind, yet mankind um, naturally rejects God. And so these are the consequences of, of rejecting the Lord. So with this whole dedication, this 12,000 people dying, um, we, we leave these things in the, in the hands of the Lord, knowing that this is the complete victory um, that God has given um, to the Israelites, just as the complete victory that God will give to every single one of his people. And in 26, it says, but Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of AI to destruction. Remember that Joshua is simply doing what the Lord God has, has told him to do. And I think that we could definitely learn a lot from this when we read scriptures that, that are probably more difficult for us to, to accept or to listen to. Um, yet these are scriptures and teachings that God has given to us, and and we would do well um, to listen to them, um, to receive them, to share them. And then in 27, only the livestock and the spoil of the city of Israel um, took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord, that he had commanded Joshua. So here, (laughs) they're making sure to do what what God has commanded, so we don't have another uh, sin of Right. And so uh, Joshua then burns Ai, and made it forever a heap of ruins um, to this day. And what's interesting here then is it, I don't think that uh, in Jericho we have the details of how the king dies, uh, but, mm. but here we have the king is hung on a tree until evening. And I, you know, I can't help but make the correlation of cursed is everyone who is, is hung on a tree. Right. And, and we can think of Christ, not in the sense that Christ was um, somehow a pagan king, um, but we also, oh, but we know that according to Isaiah, that he who knew no sin um, became sin uh, on our behalf, and that 
he became, uh, in a sense, a curse so that the curse of sin upon us um, would be lifted, that we would be forgiven of our sins um, and promise eternal life. And again, saved from fire and not just temporal fire, but, um, but eternal fire. Let me just jump in real quick on the, the thought of the tree. Uh, because I, I, I too hear what happens to the king of Ai and think of that that text from Deuteronomy where the Lord tells you know his people through Moses that the one who's hung on a tree is is cursed. And again, the way that St. Paul picks that up in his letter to the Galatians and say, you know this is what Christ did for you. and and when you hear what happens or the text that's given in Deuteronomy 20, I think it's 21 or 22. I've, I've forgotten the exact chapter now. So when you hear the text that's given in Deuteronomy and the way St. Paul applies it in Galatians 3, you know, that's nice to see the connection that is made. And it, it's a you know, wonderful thing that God's word teaches us there. But to actually see someone who is hung on a tree and to recognize the just the absolute shame and disgrace that is being communicated by it in what happens in Joshua 8, I think adds some some color to the picture of what it means that Christ became a curse for us. You know, it it helps us to, to understand just how, what a vivid picture that actually is. What does it mean that Christ became a curse for us? It means that he was made like a king whose body was desecrated and, and in utter shame and contempt. Like that's what Christ took on himself for you and for me. It just, I mean, it really adds, I think, and helps us to have a better understanding and appreciation for what Christ did for us in becoming a curse. Here's a picture of what Christ did for us. And it's, it's even more uh, incredible than, than we would have thought otherwise. It makes me, what you just said, it makes me think of uh, our crucifixes. I, I think yeah. perhaps in some way we, we kind of, make it more palatable uh, or just the depiction of the crucifixion. You know, Jesus isn't naked, nor, nor is he, nor is he bloody, but, but war is messy. Um, and, and there is, there is tons of, of bloodshed. And so, yeah, it would make us definitely think that, wow, this is Christ went through these things um, for me. He, this shame um, was upon him and that was all for me. So that, uh, I will be with him forever. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. That's right. That's right. Any more any more details we need to pick up from the the battle of AI and its aftermath before we move on to the the next part of this chapter? Uh, you know, what this was something I was kind of thinking about, but uh, at the end of of that section that you that you read it says, "And at sunset Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city." and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands uh, there to this day. And my mind can't help but go to the resurrection. I know this is probably a stretch, uh, but the king of AI stays there in this heap of stones. Um, but our king um, does not stay behind the stone, um, but he comes out from the stone. He, he rises from the dead. And so I, I think in preaching, I mean, it might be a stretch, but it, in a sense, I think you have perhaps the crucifixion and the resurrection just in those small sections right there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it is, you know, the, the death of the king as, as a pagan king, of course, you know, I mean, when it, when it talks about his grave here, there is that element of finality 
that isn't present, say, with the death of Moses. You know, when the death of Moses was described at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, you had Moses going to be with his fathers, you know, that there's this, there's still hope in death. Whereas for the the pagan king here, there is no hope in death. He, you know, he will be raised in the last day to eternal death. And so there, there is certainly a, a contrast. Uh, again, trying to see scripture as pointing us to Christ. And even here in such a battle as this, we see the Lord defeating our enemies so that we have resurrection on the last day. Let's go ahead and pick up the rest of our text. We kind of shift gears here a little bit, although it's it's not a foreign to the book of Joshua and shouldn't be too surprising having just read Deuteronomy here on Sharper Iron. Now there's going to be a break from the battle very briefly, but very importantly, so that the people of Israel can do what Moses had given them to do in the book of Deuteronomy. So we're picking up now Joshua 8, verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first, to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. That takes us to the end of Joshua chapter 8. So, okay, we've been having battles here for, for several chapters now. Joshua 6, 7, 8 have all been some way related to a battle up until now. We're going to have more battles after this, but here's a, a brief pause for the people of Israel to worship. Uh, help us into to what's happening in this part of chapter 8, Pastor Schuler. So are you telling me that Joshua's not too busy to go to church? Apparently, it would seem so. That's right. <laughs> Even in the middle of a, a war race trying to take the promised land, he can take the Sunday off, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. This, I suppose it's a Saturday, right? Yeah. This, this, this is just amazing, right? They have, they've just conquered 12,000 people. They've set the city on fire. The king is now under rocks, and they are building an altar and worshiping the Lord. Um, what, a, what a beautiful sight. I mean... They're at Mount Ibel, and they're doing just as Moses um, had commanded. Um, and again, just as with Joshua reiterating what God has already stated, so too Moses um, would have done the same thing. And it says that they, they're doing what, what God had commanded the people of Israel as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. And let's see, I have a note here. Let's see if I can find it. Specifically, um, it's in Exodus 20. And it says, um, An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be, to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. I will make 
If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So Joshua's, I mean, it sounds exactly verbatim for what is being said here um, in verses, what, 31 through 32. So an altar of uncut stones, which no one, which no man has yielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrifice and sacrifices, sacrifice peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. So as far as why it's an uncut stone, you know, I leave that in the Lord's hands. Um, but what's neat is the, the burnt offerings um, and the, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, which we, we would know that um, according to Leviticus uh, in, at cha- in chapter one and chapter three. So chapter one describes the burnt offerings in chapter three and I think seven uh, describes the peace offerings which we would state it's very interesting that the offerings are what start off um, Leviticus. But nonetheless, the the difference that the scriptures teach us between those two offerings basically is that the burnt offerings, they're all burnt up as a pleasing pleasing aroma um, to the Lord, and that the peace offerings, a portion is um, given to the worshipers um, to consume and giving thanks to God. And knowing that God has brought this this peace, this uh, shalom, um, to His people, kind of, I mean, makes me think of the Lord's Supper, where mm-hmm. the Lord gives us right His His body and His blood um, to eat and to drink, and um, we give Him thanks. Right? Uh, what is that? One of the divine services. Thank the Lord and sing His praise. You know, we I believe we sing yeah. that right after the the Lord's Supper. If if you're not singing the Nunc Dimittis, um, but it's a, a beautiful. I think, in a sense, foretaste uh, of what we see, what what takes place for us now after um, the Lord has instituted His supper. Mm. Yeah. So, so here in, in Joshua eight, as they are again renewing the covenant, you have both the sacrificial aspect, so a sacramental aspect, and then of course also the word features prominently here. This altar that is is made of uncut stones, and we we found out in I believe it was Deuteronomy chapter twenty seven that this altar was to be plastered so that so that it could be written upon, which is what we see here. The word of the Lord that had been given to Moses now is is put upon this altar in a very visible way. It's written on this altar so that that people can see it and read it and recall what God has said. You know, again, we've talked about the importance of God's word for the battles in Joshua. And here the, the word of God takes center stage on this altar. I keep keep going in this in this scene. We've got the sacrifices, the laws being written. There's going to be some blessings and curses that are spoken. Keep keep taking us into this this account. Uh, going back to what you said about the the writing on the altar, I mean we see that within many of our churches um, in the Missouri Senate that many of the altars do have right, inscriptions of, of scripture um, written on the altar. But in, in continuing in 32, uh, and there in the presence of God, the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, Moses which he had written. Now, it, it's going to talk about this uh, later on, uh, but I think the question is, is when it says law, is this all of the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch? Uh, is this the Ten Commandments? Is this the blessings and curses found in what is it Deuteronomy twenty six and, and, and or twenty seven and twenty eight? 
or, or is it all of it? I mean, we'll, we'll leave that in the Lord's hands. Uh, but nonetheless, he's, he's writing the law. And in verse 33, And all Israel sojourned, as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levite priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. Now, it's, it's interesting because it has everybody there. Um, and and it, it makes a, a clear point, um, Israel, sojourners, um, native-born, so those who would have been incorporated um, into Israel um, on the way, uh, those who would have been from Egypt um, as they're leaving, and everybody else, the elders, the officials. That, and there are, what is it, who carry the Ark of the Lord, half of them, in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them on Mount Ebal. Now, perhaps this could be um, uh, one half for the blessings and one half for the curses, um, as we heard in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Are you talking about who's standing on what mountain, or or what what do you mean? As far as who's who's proclaiming... um, Oh, right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it seems that you, you referenced Deuteronomy 27 and 28, which is where, as the writer of Joshua puts it here, you know, this is what Moses had commanded. That's where Moses lays the, the situation out. And it, you know, you've got half the tribes on each side. There doesn't appear to be any exact reason as to why they're split the way they are, but there's six on one mountain, six on the others. And then in, in Deuteronomy 27, verse 14, it, Moses there says that the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice. And then it is listed uh, 12 different curses right there to which each one, the people answer amen. So exactly how the tribes are participating in this calling of, of curses and blessings, if they're, you know, on the one hand, it kind of sounds like the Levites are doing the reading of the curses and blessings and the people are saying amen, but then maybe maybe the, the people are also somehow participating in the speaking of the curses and blessings as well, almost like a, a litany of sorts is, is kind of how I'm picturing it, but uh, nailing down the exact details, I'm not entirely positive, but definitely the Levites are involved in a, a pretty key way in addition to the tribes on each mountain. Does that... Get at what you, I'm supposed to ask the question. Does that does that does that get at what you were yes. bringing up? No, that, that, okay, good. That's good. I I think too when it comes to our worship, uh, we have a lot of imagery here within the worship that we have today. You know the like you said the litany, but even just the liturgy in general, right? You have um, the priest or the pastor um, leading the congregation and the congregation uh, responding, "Amen," at, and like you stated with the blessings and the curses, which kind of makes me think of when the gospel reading is read. Uh, and there's times when it's, it's some heavy law <laughs> and, and the people still yeah. respond with, you know, um, with the responses that we have as a church, where perhaps at times we might be a little bit hesitant, just as um, hesitant to respond with amen, perhaps is like when we read that, the entire city um, was was devoted to the Lord um, to destruction hmm. with these difficult verses to say amen. Yet um, we know that this is God and that he, he knows what is best um, for his people. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, we got about two minutes here, Pastor Schuler. There's just this, this is such a wonderful scene, as you pointed out. You know, you've got all of Israel here, and even sojourners as well. It's not just the men, it's not just the women, but it's also the children. I mean, just to see the full congregation of Israel gathered together to hear God's word, that too is a beautiful picture of the Christian church today. So there's just a number of things that are are happening in this text that that are such a a, a wonderful reminder of how much a blessing God's word is to the church, even when it seems there's maybe more important things to do, like go fight a battle, to see the people of Israel pause to carry out the Lord's instructions to hear his word is a wonderful reminder to us of just how central the word of God is for the people of God in their lives. With about those two minutes left, help us to, to wrap things up on this renewal of the covenant, the battle of AI, and, and this text that certainly points us to Jesus Christ, help us to wrap it up today. Yeah, you just made a lot of connections in my mind here. But I think we can couple the two together, the war and the worship, and, and seeing that the Lord is serving his people through both. Mm-hmm. So the Lord is serving um, the people through the conquest, and then the Lord is serving them um, in the worship. And that would basically encompass just their entire life. And so if we can understand that in our lives as well, the, that the Lord is is at work and continues to lead and guide us, um, not just in church um, on Sunday morning. Yes, we have we have the means of grace, which are, which are beautiful, but in our everyday life, um, realizing that the, that the Lord is is guiding us through His Word, um, that the Lord is is teaching us um, His ways. That we even outside of church, we remember our baptism. Um, we remember that the Lord is faithful to us; that He has given Himself. Um, for us. So no matter what um, things we encounter in life, even if it might seem like we're in war, uh, we know that the Lord is a mighty warrior uh, and that he goes before us um, and that he, I mean, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And he desires um, to bring his peace um, to us. Pastor Isaac Schuler is pastor at First Emmanuel Lutheran Church in San Jose, California, helping us today with Joshua chapter 8, verses 1 to 35. Pastor Schuler, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure, Pastor Apple. Thanks for having me. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Joshua, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.